they're very lonely, they're confused, they're not really sure what's going on, um, they haven't had a lot of communication. Some of them are really angry, you know, they used to be working really hard and now they're just sitting there. And some of them are just really tired and depressed. So this is a letter to a caretaker from Orphan 155121W4. The orphan's name is uh, Lonely Bird 2, and it's located in Cardston County, Alberta. Off kilter and leaning. Am I sinking? Stinking? I smell rot. A smashed window over there. Rusted parts hidden in tall grasses. Is it rainwater or something else? Too hard to tell. Part of me has been dismantled. Barrels remain. Barrels with ladders to the top. The coyotes abandoned the nearby den. Did they smell the rot? The roads are mud and muck. The roads shout back, back. This is uh, Orphan 44111W4, AKA Debbie Danhole, in Warner County number five. I lost my head. My horse head is gone, along with my walking beam, crank, equalizer, brittle. I am trapped, forgotten. National Petroleum Corporation, my licensee, where are you? Are you coming to save me? My name is Alana Bartol, and I am an artist and an educator. And in 2017, I created Orphan Well Adoption Agency, which is a fictional nonprofit organization dedicated to finding caretakers for orphan oil and gas wells in Alberta. Orphan wells are a sad thing. They're oil and gas wells who don't have any legal owner, usually because their company went bankrupt. And that means there's no one around to pay to have them cleaned up. The cost to reclaim and remediate these sites can vary pretty widely. It could be up to a million dollars. It could be under $20,000. Alan has been able to get 65 orphan wells adopted. And while those adoptions are strictly artistic, she's touching on a problem that we're only now beginning to understand the scale of. Because the truth is, these orphan wells, along with their aging, used-up cousins, have the potential to absolutely wreck the economies of Western Canada. After a century of drilling, Western Canada is a land transformed. In Alberta alone, there's one oil well for every two square kilometers. You can find them off of ruddy country roads or in the middle of booming cities. And so often, they sit right next to people's homes on their own land. But what happens when the oil runs dry? Who will pick up the tab to close these wells, make sure they don't explode or leak, and to return the land to what it once was? Since the oil price collapsed in 2015, it's become clear that the people currently on the hook for what will be the world's biggest janitorial job are Canadian taxpayers. The costs are increasing like crazy and could turn multiple provinces into fiscal basket cases. And that's not all. Just below the surface, Big Oil has been engaging in a scheme that some are likening to the subprime mortgage crisis. And the consequences could be devastating. I'm Archie Mann, and for Canada Land, this is Commons. 
was drilled in 1979. No, 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 it's really 1977. Sorry, seven. Sorry, okay. Okay, sorry about that. It's a long time ago. <laughs> Herman and Shirley Doran live in the small town of Didsbury, which sits about halfway between Calgary and Red Deer. My parents are both teachers. Originally, they bought this land. My dad was a teacher in Didsbury, bought the land on the edge of town because it was a good deal. My dad always wanted to be a cattle rancher, and then he started doing that, and and then along came the oil company. That's their son, Mark Doran. The Dorans never wanted a well drilled on their land. But if you listen to our episode about Weibo Ludwig, you'll know that Albertans don't really get a say in that. Once production began, the Dorans were immediately affected. At night, they could see the fires used to burn off excess gas from the well. If you could have seen this huge flare that was here, it lit up our whole, we've got a two-story house, it lit up our whole house. Like at night, the flame shadow was dancing on the walls of our child's bedroom, you know. It was right in, right at the end of my garden. An active well on your land is always going to be a frustrating experience especially since the landowners aren't entitled to any of the profits. You know, people down east that clearly don't understand our situation, you know, they say, well, you know, Albertans are rich. If there's oil on your land, you're rich. No. You, 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 receive, you receive nothing, not one penny from those minerals. Instead, landowners are supposed to be paid rent for the use of their land. But the Dorans didn't even get that. Instead, they got a very small one-time payment. Because we're the only people in Alberta, I think, that don't get an annual payment. And if you don't get an annual payment, you don't get a review every five years. And so we've had a struggle to even put forth any uh, uh, concerns that we have. They were essentially stuck in a loophole. Because they don't get rental payments, they couldn't get a hearing. And without hearings, they couldn't get anything changed. But after numerous fights, the regulator did eventually shut down the well on their land. But the Dorans were never told about the decision, and a week later, the well was back in operation. This is what occurred for several years until they got it all shut down, and then the, the regulator came out, shut it down, and they didn't tell my parents that they'd been permanently shut down, and the guy just came back and started back up the next week and kept on producing, even in contravention of the prohibition order. This well has caused a lot of grief for the Dorans. When you ask how it affected us, I think you can probably tell by our emotional response that it's actually taken over our life since that time, really, you know. I discovered that they were illegally venting gas, and it would, they, this gas would be released about every 25 minutes, and if the wind was from that direction, it blew right into my garden. And I think it's very suspicious that that's why today I'm suffering from Parkinson's. You know, that's, that's they say, this is a, a cause of, of Parkinson's, is breathing uh, gas. The way I like to put it, uh, my, my mother is now diagnosed with Parkinson's disease caused by hydrocarbon poisoning. And the, the way I like to put it is the Service Rights Board valued her life at zero. We can't confirm that the oil well caused her Parkinson's, but it's clear that all of this has left a huge toll on the Dorans. The well stopped producing in 1999, and you would think that would be the end of the Dorans' problems. Far from it. Two decades later, the company has refused to clean it up, and their land, which would otherwise be worth a good deal of money, 
now has little value. It's just ongoing. The oil company could hold the rights to that land forever, presumably. But we can't develop it. We can't use it. And, and if you have a site like that on your land in Alberta, the bank won't lend you any money. You can't borrow against your land. You can't sell it. It, it essentially renders your land worthless. The Dorans feel powerless. There's little they can do to get that well cleaned up, despite everything they've been through. This isn't just one small family's struggle. Alberta is full of people like the Dorans. Same with BC and Saskatchewan. All of these inactive wells pose a risk to people's health and safety and destroy the value of the land that they sit on. But these aren't just local issues affecting one family at a time. Instead, these wells are a ticking financial time bomb that could go off at any moment. And some within the oil industry are doing everything they can to make sure it's everyday people who will bear the brunt of the damage. The landscape of the western provinces are pockmarked with oil and gas wells. The government of Alberta says there are about just under 350,000 wells in the province, and half of those are no longer active. So either they have been plugged already or they're just sitting there, they're not producing, but they haven't been sealed either. My name is Sharon Riley. I'm a reporter for the Narwhal. I cover energy and the environment in Alberta. When I first started reporting on this, I hadn't really been on the lookout for wells in the past, but I was driving along a highway from Medicine Hat and just sort of mentally whenever I saw a well saying well to myself, and it's just well, 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 well as you're driving along the highway. They're everywhere. What makes Alberta sort of unique is that there aren't any required timelines on when wells are safely sealed or plugged or reclaimed, so those wells can sit for quite a long time on the landscape without having any work done on them at all. Since the early 1990s, the oil and gas industry has set aside money into the Orphan Well Association. And what it does is it takes on wells that have been uh, left behind when a company files for insolvency. That means when a company goes bust and no one buys the well, it becomes an orphan. And it's the Orphan Well Association that will pay to clean that up. But since the oil price collapsed in 2015, thousands of wells have ended up being orphaned. It's not like this everywhere. In North Dakota, which has a massive oil and gas industry, it's notable when there are two wells orphaned in a year. That's because the state has strict cleanup timelines and forces companies to put down money up front. But in Alberta, there simply hasn't been enough money set aside to deal with the problem. According to an independent report, the cost of cleaning up these wells will be between 40 and 70 billion dollars. But there's only 200 million set aside to deal with the issue. That's 0.3% of the total. And there's a real danger that a lot of that cost will be borne by taxpayers. So in those cases, if the company is gone, we don't know if the Orphan Well Association is going to be able to handle paying for all the cleanup of all of these wells. Basically, like at what at what point have we pushed too far and now these these costs revert to the taxpayer essentially? Even worse, Sharon Riley has found that the Alberta Energy Regulator continues to allow small companies to drill wells, even if they can't afford to pay for the cleanup costs. 
basically the regulator has a system in place and it's supposed to evaluate a company and whether it should be allowed to drill a new well or obtain a license for a well. And that system is pretty simple. The idea is it looks at two fairly basic measures. It looks at a company's assets and it looks at its liabilities and then it calculates a score. The trouble is that Basically, nothing about the calculations of those two measures is is all that accurate. The regulator severely underestimates how much it actually costs to clean up a well site. And the expected profits are based off of numbers from 2008 to 2010, a time when oil prices were well north of $100 a barrel. In other words, they are totally overestimating how much a company would be making. It's giving licenses to companies and allowing companies to drill new wells without actually having any assurance that they'll be able to pay for their cleanup in the future. According to the Globe and Mail, around 45% of producers are in a precarious financial state. And between them, they have over 28,000 wells. I think Alberta's starting to realize that this system is adequate at best during a boom, and it doesn't work so well under a bust. As these small producers keep going bankrupt, the chances of the public having to pick up the tab increase substantially. And the government's already had to step in for hefty sums. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley was at an orphaned oil well near Carstairs this morning to announce $235 million will be put to reclaim land on these abandoned sites. And that's bad enough. But there's a hustle going on in the oil patch. And if it's allowed to continue, things could be far, far worse. Well, we first noticed that that something might be going on here when a company called Sequoia Resources Corp. uh, went bankrupt. My name is Jeff Lewis. I'm the environment reporter for the Globe and Mail based in Calgary. Sequoia was a small company, but it was making big moves. We had never really heard of it before, but it had managed, nonetheless, to accumulate quite a stockpile of sort of these uneconomic natural gas wells. We thought we'd better take a deeper dive here and just look at who had been selling these wells to this company that no one had ever heard of and, you know, try to get a sense of what the business plan was on behalf of Sequoia. On paper, things didn't make a whole lot of sense. Natural gas had once been a booming industry in Alberta, but prices had plunged in recent years as shale gas from the U.S. flooded the market. The idea was, you know, if we buy enough of these wells at a low price and commodity prices, natural gas prices recover, we'll have paid, you know, pennies on the dollar for these assets and and we'll be able to sort of reap a windfall. It bears mentioning that, you know, virtually nobody else was making this debt. They could have looked like the smartest guys in the room uh, had it worked out. The company they were buying from, Perpetual Energy, was much larger and better financed. Normally, the Alberta energy regulator is supposed to step in and make sure that the company buying the wells can afford the cleanup costs. But the deal between Sequoia and Perpetual was structured in a way to avoid that scrutiny. And Sequoia went on a spending spree, buying more old wells from big companies. And sure enough, the company soon went bankrupt and all of those wells ended up being orphaned. As Jeff Lewis and the team at The Globe poured over documents to try to understand this deal, they came to see a pattern. The hustle that we're talking about is large 
typically well-financed companies who have access to financing from big banks. So, uh, you know, these are mom-and-pop operations, effectively offloading these wells and assets that are burdened with, you know, hefty cleanup costs onto smaller companies that don't have the balance sheets to, to clean them up. Since 2015, when energy prices collapsed, there's been a growing trade in these old wells. We kind of look back to 2015, and we found more than 140,000 oil and gas wells have changed hands in that period, up until when we published this, which was uh, the fall of 2018. And the direction is usually the same. A big company selling to a small underfinanced company that is unlikely to be able to pay to clean them up. All of this goes against the basic social contract of the West. We'll let your company drill for oil as long as you return the land back to normal when you're done. Instead, these large companies are getting rid of these wells onto the backs of small corporations who are likely to go bankrupt, putting the cleanup costs onto the taxpayer. If things continue on the current trajectory, the public could ultimately be left with, with a sizable bill. And some of the transactions the globe looked into were even shadier. Some of these players who were doing the buying, you know, weren't legitimate companies. We traced several to offshore holding companies, you know, multiple addresses, companies based out of like, you know, suburban homes, which sort of points to sort of the, the, the weakness in, in, in the regulatory system here is that no one's really sort of checking up on who's buying these wells. The trustee for Sequoia is now suing Perpetual Energy, claiming that they knew the wells would bankrupt the buyers. The implication there is that this was a non-arms-length transfer to a related company for the express purposes of moving these liabilities off the balance sheet of the main company. Perpetual Energy denies the claims. It's a pretty bold claim to make, and it's currently being tested in the courts. And where were the regulators in all of this? Companies are supposed to put down security deposits on these wells to make sure there's money for a cleanup after. But that wasn't happening. The regulator should be making sure that companies buying these wells are financed enough to take care of them. Instead, they were giving them a pass. Many argue that the problem is that the regulator is in a conflict of interest. It's supposed to be both a cheerleader for the industry and make sure companies are following the law. You may look at it and say, that's not rocket science, but I mean, you do have a regulator that, that on the one hand is supposed to be enforcing people, enforcing the rules, but it's also promoting development. An overhaul is necessary here, to my mind anyway. You know, you had a regulator ignoring its own rules and approving questionable deals. And we have yet to see any sort of, you know, anything in the way of, of corrective action. The trade in these unprofitable oil wells reminds Lewis of a similar trade. The U.S. subprime mortgage crisis, in a nutshell, you had borrowers with little financial capacity racking up big debts that were bundled and sold as securities. The defaults on those securities were sort of played a role in, in basically upending, you know, almost upending, if not somewhat upending, the, the financial system, the global financial system. So in this case, uh, you know, you, you had companies bundling distressed or bad oil and gas wells and selling them to buyers who didn't have the financial capacity to develop the assets or clean, you know, handle the environmental liabilities that came with those purchases. And then we've seen uh, a handful of those companies subsequently go bankrupt. And in this case, it isn't 
mortgage holders who can't make house payments, but oil companies that don't measure up to the regulator's version of a credit score. These oil wells are literal toxic assets. And like when banks were holding on to billions of dollars in toxic mortgage loans, governments are worried that if they try to accurately assess how much these cleanups will actually cost, a lot of these companies could go bankrupt all at once. Governments had to bail out the big banks. And now there's a fear that they'll have to step in once again and bail out the oil and gas sector. The worst case could be a lot of money, you know, that the industry suddenly can't afford to pay for. And we could see, you know, governments stepping in to to backstop this stuff. Here's Mark Doran again. Some of what these companies do is extremely daring and extremely blatant. The only possible way that they believe, could believe they could get away with this is if they know that the, that the enforcement officials just aren't going to enforce anything. It was proposed by industry and put in by industry. It was what industry talked government into letting them do. The oil and gas wells we're talking about here are only one part of the energy industry in the West. And, and let's not forget, I mean, we're, we're only writing here mainly about um, orphan wells and, and inactive wells. There's a really massive oil sands industry that we didn't really get into that. But of course, if you extrapolate, you know, the reporting that we've done and, and you say, well, you know, if the industry can't be relied upon to clean up this mess, what faith should Albertans and, and you know, the Canadian public have that ultimately the, the strip mines and the tailings ponds in northern Alberta are going to be cleaned up? And even that is just a small part of what needs to be done once the oil dries up. But that doesn't include health liabilities, doesn't include landowner payments. That's just the cost of abandoning wells and cleanup alone. And for conventional oil, that's probably in a, probably around $70 billion just for conventional oil. That doesn't include gas, that doesn't include facilities, that doesn't include heavy oil or oil sands. So, you know, and it certainly doesn't include health care and it doesn't include hospitalization costs or sickness or anything like that. So you add it all up, it's a trillion dollars, if not more, for sure. It's more than we can afford. We have no choice in this province. If we don't start abandoning these wells now, it will take our entire province down. We have no choice. We can't allow a few bankrupt, irresponsible operators to destroy our entire province. It's just not an option. Human lives depend on it. Property rights depend on it. Despite what happened to his family, Mark Doran himself is an oil man. He's worked in the industry for decades. And I assure you, that we have the oil field technology to do this. And when when I was in the oil field in the 70s, we didn't operate like this. I I worked for responsible oil companies. They didn't operate like this. They voluntarily did things properly and safely. But Doran thinks the politicians and the regulators are too captured by the industry to make any serious changes. The whole system that industry designed and convinced government to put in place to give them breaks is now the system that's taking them down. So it's very ironic. <laughs> so it's, it's very ironic. The old days are over, Doran says. It's time to look reality in the face. So there's no more capital for it. The conventional oil basin in southern Alberta is drained. The oil's not going back in the ground. 
It's done. It's finished. It's time to clean it up. The problem with these old wells and orphan wells is only getting worse. Two weeks ago, Trident, a small producer, went bankrupt, creating 4,000 new orphan wells in a single day. your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Sharon Riley, Jeff Lewis, Alana Page, Jeffrey Jones, Chen Wang, Renata Delisio, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Canadaland Commons. That's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. There's an election coming up in the fall, and you may have noticed that Canadian politics has gotten a little bit bonkers recently. I mean, there's the SNC-Lavalin affair. Nazis are back now, I guess. There's Jason Kenney's civil war. Doug Ford is blowing up Ontario, and apparently PEI is now powered by fish. The point is, so much crazy shit is happening right now that it can be hard to keep up. That's why we're here. As the election looms, our podcast, Oppa, will keep you informed about the week in Canadian politics. Along the way, we're going to be speaking to Canada's top politicians, a whole bunch of the bottom ones, and everybody in between. So listen to Oppo for all the twists and turns as the election comes. That is O-P-P-O, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts.